Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Bart Elmore on seed money. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the current events and politics, food and beverage, health and fitness, or science and medicine category for episode number 183 with Richard A. Williams on Fixing Food. Hi, this is Richard Williams. I'm the author of Fixing Food, an FDA insider unravels the myths and the solutions. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Barto J. L. Moore is an award-winning professor at The Ohio State University and a writer who investigates the impact of big business on our environment. His newest book is titled Seed Money, Monsanto's Past and Our Food Future. Bart, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Doing fantastic. Pleasure to be on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure's all mine. So what was your goal with Seed Money? You know, I didn't really have much of a goal when I started. I I really, as I've said to a lot of people, I really kind of lucked into this story in some ways. I fell into it. I was writing a book on Coca-Cola and its environmental impact around the world. I'm an environmental historian, which is what I do. I look at kind of the impacts of big business on the environment over time and also the ways in which nature can shape the course of, of business growth. And I was writing, I was trying to figure out how Coca-Cola extracted their caffeine for their product, how they got caffeine into their soft drinks. And I found out that it was Monsanto, this chemical company in St. Louis that that made this caffeine for Coca-Cola, that basically Monsanto was Coke's caffeine supplier. And I traveled to St. Louis to see what I could find there and ended up getting access to the company's corporate records in St. Louis. And that was when I think I, you know, it was around, I don't know, 2010, 2011. That was when I said, Oh my gosh, I need to come back once I finish this Coke book and write this history of Monsanto from start to finish. And, uh, I did, uh, (laughs) I guess a decade later. So it took about 10 years to do, but it was well worth the journey. And, um, and I think in a way, you could also say that I was somebody always interested in food, interested in, in how do we create a more sustainable food system? And so I was, I was really drawn to this company that became the largest seed seller in the world, you know, by the end of the 20th century, but didn't own a single seed company when it started, right? It, it started as a chemical firm. So I really wanted to understand that. How the heck did they get from being this chemical firm making caffeine for Coke to being this company that, you know, makes all these seeds that we now depend on for our food. And going back to the very beginning, why does Monsanto's story actually begin with the artificial sweetener saccharin? Yeah, that's right. So even before caffeine, caffeine was kind of maybe one of the second or third products that they, that Monsanto developed. And I should mention, you know, Monsanto started in 1901 in St. Louis right at the turn of the 20th century, um, you know, going from the Gilded Age into the Progressive Era, started by this guy, John Queenie, who you really feel for this person, to be honest with you. You know, I know Monsanto, a lot of people think of it as Monsatan, you know, this evil corporation. But at the very beginning, this this guy is just trying to get by. Um, I know you have a kid. I think I've heard you on your podcast say, I've got children. He's got two kids, 
both are under the age of five, I think, at this point. Um, he's 40 years old when he starts this company. He, he tried to start his business on his own, and, the, and his business had burned down in the 1890s. Like, he's really struggling. He's lost all his life savings. All the pictures I see of him at that time, he just, he just doesn't look very happy. He's just kind of, <laughs> like, struggling, right? So I think we think of this powerful company, but really it starts with like this guy just trying to make it on his own. He's a drug salesman who doesn't really know anything about chemistry. In fact, he tells this uh, this uh, senator in this hearing that he gives in the 1920s, uh, the, the senator is kind of grilling him on the chemicals his company's producing by the 20s. And he says to the senator, he says, Senator, you're getting into chemistry, sir, on which matter I'm rather weak. You know, he doesn't know chemistry. He doesn't, he never studied chemistry as a high school, doesn't even have a high school diploma. He's just a person trying to make it, you know? And I, I kind of tried to tell that story of a very human story of a guy starting out. And so, yeah, he chooses this artificial sweetener, saccharin, to start out with, to see if he can manufacture saccharin in the United States. And that's because most of these chemicals at this point, coming from coal tar, actually, of all things, the byproduct of turning coal into coke, which is basically coal without its impurities used in the steel industry, that byproduct, which is like a black syrupy tar, coal tar, is how he made most of his chemicals and how the chemical industry made most of their chemicals at the time. And he, but, but it's mainly coming from Europe. Germany is the key player in the chemical industry at that point. And he wants to kind of liberate the Americans from that stranglehold of Germany. And he chooses this chemical saccharin, which is becoming very popular, artificial sweetener, some 300 to 500 times more sweet than sucrose, regular table sugar. And uh, he's able to su- successfully do this to make saccharin. Um, he has to import uh, European scientists from Switzerland because he doesn't know what he's doing to make it. But he does. And it's it's very popular, especially in the soft drink industry. Now, Coke you know, will hate this because they don't like talking about their ingredients. But this is true. I mean, Coca-Cola was the chief buyer of Monsanto's saccharin. In fact, they bought all of Monsanto's saccharin. In other words, Coca-Cola was secretly sweetening their beverage with saccharin, this artificial sweetener coming from coal tar. They didn't tell their consumers this um, because it was cheaper to do so. Um, and this is long before Diet Coke or, artif- you know, the artificial sweeteners like aspartame we have today. They were sweetening it with saccharin just because it saved on cost. And, you know, all I'll say, you know, there is that without Coke's contracts, Monsanto wouldn't exist. It, it was it was critical that Coke, this huge soft drink company by that point, it, it's op- Coke is operating in every state in the, in the country by that point. Huge inventory. Uh, that's what gets Monsanto off the ground. And from there, the journey just gets weirder. <laughs> yeah, I believe you wrote that Monsanto employees at the time called Coca-Cola their cash cow or their milk cow. That's how important uh, Coca-Cola was to Monsanto. Now, in 1911, the USDA took Coca-Cola to court, charging that their product was an unadulterated adulterated product, excuse me, because caffeine was added to induce addiction. What were some of the tabloid-worthy details of this trial that you were most entertained by? Yeah, I mean, you know, I had written about this before because I'd written about Coca-Cola in this trial in 1911, where Harvey Wiley, who I believe you've also had a a gentleman on your uh, podcast who wrote about the FDA, you know, 
Harvey Wiley, the head of this poison squad back in the early 1900s. He was obsessive about all these chemicals that were entering the food supply and wanted to regulate it. And caffeine, of all things, was one of the targets of his ire. Um, this, this head of this USDA Bureau of Chemistry that was responsible with kind of regulating the food industry at that time. And yes, in 1911, uh, Wiley and his team bring suit against Coca-Cola for having caffeine that was added. That was the key thing that he thought was so pernicious about Coca-Cola, that caffeine was added as an ingredient to the beverage to kind of create addiction. It wasn't like coffee where you just had caffeine naturally in it. It was something that was added. And so that was what the trial was about. And naturally, Monsanto gets pulled into this. John Queenie goes to the trial because this is such a big deal. As you said, it's their cash cow. I mean, you got to understand at the Monsanto factories, they literally had to wait for Coca-Cola's paychecks to come in for the payments for the for their caffeine to actually pay their workers. I mean, that's how dependent they were on Coca-Cola. And so they go to trial. Ultimately, uh, the, the there's a kind of settlement in that trial that allows Coca-Cola, of course, to have its caffeine. They, they agree to reduce the, the, the amount of caffeine in the drink. Um, and Monsanto continues to sell caffeine to, to Coca-Cola. One interesting thing in that trial, though, that you hear, today you'll hear that Coca-Cola will never acknowledge that it had coca leaf in its drink. You know, um, this leaf that, that uh, comes from the coca shrub in South America, specifically Peru, is actually where Coca-Cola sources its coca leaves. In that trial, you see Coca-Cola saying, well, yeah, we have coca leaf in the drink. And we, we used to, there used to even be trace amounts of cocaine, the alkaloid cocaine that comes from the coca leaf in the drink. Uh, now, Coke, of course, will never acknowledge this, even though their name is Coca-Cola. <laughs> they've, they've worked so hard over the years to kind of obfuscate that connection. But I'm here to tell you, as somebody who traveled to Peru to, to track this story and went into the archives, found declassified DEA documents that show this trade, it's not a secret. I mean, it's, it's, it's very clearly documented that this has happened throughout the 20th century. And it's one of the key ingredients that makes Coca-Cola what it is. It's secret ingredient number five, gives it a special flavor to the drink. So you can see that in that trial. If anyone wants to go back to those old newspaper articles, which are still, you can find on newspapers.com and reads through the trial, you'll see uh, very clearly the company talking about that connection. So it wasn't just caffeine that was a, at issue in some ways, it was also cocaine for Coca-Cola. But that was no matter for, for, for Monsanto. The key thing for them is they wanted to be able to have a caffeine supply to Coca-Cola and ultimately, that, that case went in their favor, and it kept the company really afloat as they entered in, into World War uh, World War One. It's so funny that they shy away from that little detail that there were trace amounts of cocaine back in the day. I mean, that was an era where doctors were literally prescribing heroin to babies. So it's certainly not yeah. that far-fetched considering the times. And I think, Trey, another thing I would say that's so important is that, you know, in so doing and, and, and kind of creating this, uh, you know, taboo about coca leaves, they've really thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, one could argue that street cocaine, you know, that's a very different thing than coca leaf, which has very small amounts of this alkaloid in it. And if you go to Peru today, as I did, you can have coca tea there. It, 
I, I guarantee you it, it'll hop you up less than a espresso from Starbucks. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not, you know, something crazy. And, and I think one of the things I, I saw in that story is a story of we, how we villainize certain drugs and, and in this era, how certain things, including of course, marijuana and other things, but coca leaves was really disturbing to me because there are a lot of coca farmers in Peru and other places who would love to sell coca tea in the United States. You know, and, and to have a, a, a legal trade for the coca leaf, which, again, is, should be distinguished from kind of white powder. We think of, of cocaine that's that's used in, in drug markets. Um, and yet Coke was very, very heavily involved in trying to create laws that prevented coca leaves from coming into the United States, uh, except for them getting a special exemption for them to bring in leaves, but not other companies. So, um you know, and I think that goes back to Monsanto. We see the same thing with Monsanto, really working behind closed doors at times to get special deals, special, uh, you know, working with government regulators to get what they want. Um, I saw a very similar story with Monsanto that I saw with Coke in some ways. Hmm. And there's also uh, an eerie connection with pharmaceutical companies throughout Monsanto's history that we will get into in a little bit. First, though, and fast forwarding a little bit, I hate to skip over certain parts, but we only have an allotted time and people are just going to need to buy the book to read all the details. When and why did Monsanto begin investing heavily in agricultural chemicals and pesticides? Yeah, it's a great point. You know, I kept waiting for it in the archives. Again, I'm looking at these old records and I'm kind of thinking, okay, this is a big ag company. Where's all the ag investment? It took a while, to be honest with you, Trey. I think you really see Monsanto going in hard to ag chemicals in the post-war era. That is post-World War II, 1940s, 1950s, and 60s. That's really where they're starting to hire entomologists, you know, people who study insects, people who are studying weeds, and starting to develop herbicides um, and pesticides to, uh, to counteract in- in insects. Interestingly, they consider fertilizer, but they believe that if you look at the record, they say, you know, fertilizers is such a robust market. There's so many there's so many people competing in that market. We'll do better to focus on herbicides and insecticides. And that's where they really put their their weight behind things. They start out with uh, DDT is one of their products that they made, you know, well-known chemical today, because, of course, we ended up banning DDT in the 1970s out of concerns for what it was doing, not only to wildlife, but also to, to humans. Um, their DDT was, ba- was branded Santoban. Uh, a lot of these insecticides, they were, you know, we think of DDT as this monolithic thing, but there were different companies with different brands. Um, they then got into producing a lot of herbicides. The f- one of the first big products for them was a chemical called 245T. Um, a chlorinated herbicide. These, these, these herbicide names are all wonky. 245T <laughs> and 24D, you know. In a way, I think their names is meant to imply, don't ask any questions, right? Like <laughs> this, this, you know, this is beyond you. Just use it. It works really well. 245T and 24D, of course, became um, the key ingredients in Agent Orange that were used in the Vietnam War. And actually, Monsanto, as you'll see in the book, I traveled to Vietnam um, I actually went to the factories where this stuff was manufactured um, and which are today super fun sites in West Virginia. And, you know, these chemicals became very popular for Monsanto. Monsanto actually during the Vietnam War was the largest seller of Agent Orange to the U.S. military. 
by volume. Dow Chemical was the number two supplier to the United to the United States government. So this was a huge business for them. But the problem with a lot of these early chlorinated herbicides is that they were super toxic. You know, I see documentation and you'll see it in this book. I went back to the factory where they were manufacturing this stuff in 1949. That's when they began making 245T in a town called Nitro, West Virginia. You can't make this stuff up. You know, an explosive town name. It was actually a munitions, uh, a town built for munitions manufactured during World War One, And they made nitrocellulose, so it's called Nitro. And I spent time there, met, met the attorneys and, and got to know the workers through the court records that are still there who worked in the factory producing 245T, which was contaminated with a compound called dioxin, which I've seen some scholars describe as being the Darth Vader of chemical compounds, you know, just having such systemic widespread health effects in terms of uh, adverse health effects when people are exposed to this stuff. And Monsanto's 245T had especially high concentrations of dioxin, so much so that the workers in the factory, as early as 1949, were coming down with debilitating acne called chloracne, where there are mm. pustules on their backs and arms and bodies. And, you know, for me as a writer, it was really disturbing to go through all that and say, you know, my father, for example, was in the Vietnam War. And to think, wow, this is 49 and 50. Look at these internal confidential reports where they're saying, wow, our workers are all tore up. They're, they're systemic nervous problems in their faces peeling off, you know, because we're having to take off these layers of acne on them. You don't shut down production, you know? I mean, that to me was really one of those jaw-dropping moments watching this company producing something that they knew was causing problems in their own workers and not only selling it, you know, when we think about Vietnam, but a lot of this stuff, we don't talk about this, but was sold to gardeners and to people in the United States in the 50s and 40s. You can see in the New York Times, it says 245T, wonderful stuff, you know? <laughs> We sprayed it here, in other words, on ourselves before we even sprayed it overseas. And, and one wonders, what were the long-term effects of people being exposed to this? That's one of the lingering questions, I think, that, that goes throughout the book. So, so I'll just say again that, that we really see them ramping up into things like 245T herbicides, insecticides in the 40s and 50s. And a lot of these compounds are really problematic, and they're seeing problems inside their own facilities which is what I took a lot of effort to document because a lot of people say, well, it was a different time. You know, they really didn't know things. I think as a historian, it's so important to say, what did they know and when did they know it? Because now when we think about cleaning up this stuff, you know, what is the obligation of a company to go back and right the wrongs of some of the things that, that are still there? I mean, dioxin contamination still exists in soil in Vietnam. I was there, saw it myself. And we're just beginning to clean this up with U.S. taxpayer dollars. One question is, where is Monsanto, or in this case, Bayer, which bought the company in 2018? So we'll get to that. But I feel like for me, it's, it's just critical to document that story of what they knew and how early they knew that some of these chemicals were problematic. So clearly they had an idea that there was something extremely unhealthy about many of these chemicals. Did you uncover evidence of an actor, an active cover up within the company to 
try and keep people and uh, people who are actually with the company quiet about things and just try and keep the media and the public unaware of what was actually going on. If we take another chemical, polychlorinated biphenols or PCBs, which were produced around the same time, this was 1930s when they started really producing PCBs. They were the only manufacturer of polychlorinated biphenols in the country. The reason I mention this one is because it's still pervasive. I think about your listeners and the fact that this is a history that's still very much alive. Some people are still, you know, the, the exposure to PCBs can, is still there because this stuff was in everything. It was put into transformers and all the electrical equipment coming out of the post-war era. Um, it was put into carbonless receipt paper. Um, it was put into the, the, the paint and the lining of pools. It was in the paint and the lining of silos. I mean, it was just uh, Christmas trees, artificial Christmas trees. And partially because it was a fire retardant. It was something that prevented fires. So it was put into all these different things to stop fires. And ostensibly, that's a good thing. The problem is we learned in the 60s, oh my gosh, once again, just like we talked about with dioxin, PCBs are just super toxic. And now we've put it into everything, including in our silos that hold our food. I mean, come on. And where we swim, geez, Louise, right? And, and the liability there was so through the roof for Monsanto that they were super scared, right? They're the only manufacturer of this stuff in the United States. It's not like you can point to a bunch of different companies. Well, I don't know, is this their PCBs or ours? It's just you. And so in the 60s, when all this health concern was kind of emerging, um, Monsanto created this secret confidential, to your point, ad hoc committee where they talked about things very candidly behind closed doors, but very aggressively. You can see it in their documentation. You know, do not offer up any more information than is needed. You know, do not leak information about what we think about the toxicity of these products. There's a really startling document in there um, in that those files from 1969 that just struck me so hard. Um, it's from the ad hoc committee on this issue of PCBs and it's handwritten notes. And one of the notes says, the problem is snowballing and can't be contained basically, you know, that there's no way we, we how are we going to solve this? And the executive writes two alternatives. He says, you know, we can, well, let's see. One is we can go out of the business. We can stop production. And I think any sane person looking at the problem would have said, yeah, that's what you should do. But alternative two was, let's sell the hell out of them as long as we possibly can. And that's a quote, sell the hell out of them as long as we possibly can. And the person actually went back and put in a little divot to add the hell out of them. It wasn't like it was a, an afterthought. It was deliberate. And in some ways, yes, they closed down their aniston plant, but they do. They keep producing PCBs into the 1970s. They make adjustments. They try and downsize. They try and get out of the business, but they're still producing it, still putting it out there. And I think you see, again, this effort to control the information, you know, this gatekeeper. And you can see that clearly in the documents. Don't leak information about this, even as they know that this is a global contaminant. That's a problem, you know. So I think what I started seeing is that even though there's a lot of good people in this company, I got to interview a lot of good people in the company. There is a kind of culture in the, in the, in the corporation of, you know, let's go out there. And if we've got a profitable product, we've got to find a way to sustain that because we lose a lot of money, you know, and I think that's a dangerous 
mindset that that leads to some of the problems we see in the book. It sounds a lot like the attitude of a lot of pharmaceutical salespeople who helped fuel the opioid epidemic over the last 25 or so years now. I talked to a uh, a manager of Roundup, and just to if we can pivot there for a second, sure. keep the timeline going. You know, it's because of all the uproar over Agent Orange and PCBs that Monsanto is looking for healthier chemicals in the 1970s. They, they, they produce Roundup, this herbicide in the 1970s, because they're trying to get away from a toxic herbicide, 245T, that they'd used in the 60s during the Vietnam War, that people at that point had already said, wow, this, you know, we're seeing problems here and we need to move away from it. Roundup by the 70s, when Monsanto creates this herbicide, becomes a blockbuster product for them. I mean, it becomes the first billion dollar herbicide killing, you know, weed killer in history. And it's like, you know, if you're Microsoft, it's MS-DOS. You know, it is it is the most important mm-hmm. application you have that got that got them really rolling. And they're they're not going to be willing throughout <laughs> their history to kind of move away from Roundup because of just how powerful it is. But I talked to the one of the managers of the Roundup brand for the company. And he kept using language that was like pharma language you know Hmm. he would describe going in to talk to farmers and courting farmers in a way that and he said it explicitly was just like a person going into the doctor's office right to show them the new drug that they should be prescribing to their patients and things like that uh he even described roundup as having a kind of pharmaceutical effect like that once it was out and once people could see it's you know usefulness in killing weeds that there was a certain kind of visible display of it that uh that allowed them to sell this stuff and that he he put it as he put it oh shit the margins were very very good i mean (laughs) he he was talking very candidly about how much money they were making off roundup right but the actual cost of making this weed killer was nothing compared to what they were able to sell it for markups to farmers who were willing to buy it because, again, it had this almost like, you know, this magical effect when it when it was sprayed on fields, and um, and so yeah, it was. He he made that very clear that they even kind of thought in some ways that it was like pharma what they were doing, you know, selling these herbicides. It was like selling drugs in some ways, and you could definitely say I'm, not, I'm you know I I very, I'm loath to dive into conspiracy theories in this book and i really try my best to try and debunk any myths when i find them i really wanted to stick to the facts as much as i could Mm -hmm. but i don't think it's an exaggeration to say if you talk to farmers as i did i spent a lot of time with you know out in fields and talking to people that it was like an addiction you know once farmers became connected to roundup so so deeply once they became so reliant on it it became impossible for many of them in their minds to to move away from it. it it became such a useful tool in their minds to reduce their labor costs they don't have to go out and weed as much and and this is in, in part because of course monsanto creates roundup ready crops in the 1990s genetically engineered crops that can tolerate heavy spraying of roundup that was the key in the 90s that made this you know, blockbuster herbicide by the 80s and 90s an even more big blockbuster 
because now you have crops that can tolerate the spraying of this Roundup throughout the growing season. And again, for farmers, that was crazy. I can spray Roundup whenever I want and it won't kill my crops because they're genetically engineered to tolerate this stuff and it'll kill all the weeds. I mean, hallelujah, right? Like, this is awesome. And and I think I wanted to be clear on that. Farmers aren't, weren't stupid. You know, it wasn't like they were being duped. It looked like magic. If you talk to farmers, that was the key word that kept coming up in interviews. Magic, magic, magic. Man, who wouldn't have bought that stuff? The problem was once you bought it, once you retooled your farming system, man, was it going to be hard to get away from it. And, and Monsanto really had a lock on a lot of farming communities after that. Well, speaking specifically about genetically engineered seeds, shortly after beginning to offer these up commercially, Monsanto began requiring farmers to sign a technology use agreement or TUA. What exactly is this? Well, I have to say, Trey, I've been listening to your podcast. I really appreciate that you read the books very closely because this was a critical part of the story. And and I think it's sometimes overlooked because it's kind of a wonky little, you know, part of the story, you know, what is this technology use agreement? Again, these terms that are innocuous when you hear it, but it changed. I mean, it was a revolution in farming where soybean farmers, cotton farmers were having to sign these agreements that said, I will not save seeds from my harvest and replant them. When When I buy these seeds and I grow my crops, I will not save seeds from that harvest to replant in the next growing season. I will agree to basically buy new seed the next year. And that was something new because farmers throughout history have been saving seed, you know, and replanting seed and experimenting with seed. The TUA was a was a unique mechanism that um, Bob Shapiro, Rob Fraley, the, the heads of this uh, of this of Monsanto at the time were organizing this kind of GE a genetic engineering seed boom of the 1990s, you know, created. And it was a way to make sure that, okay, if we're going to create this technology. We don't want it to just be, okay, one time, once it's out, then people can just continue to use it. We want it to be like a software that people have to pay a licensing fee for over and over again. And that's how we're going to make money. Um, and it really became quite nasty, Trey, because, you know, that's when we started seeing Monsanto also hiring detectives you know, sending out helicopters to go out and make sure that farmers were not, as they put it, misusing seed. I won't do this uh, to your to your listeners here, but your listeners can call a number on their own, 1-800-ROUNDUP. They can do it right now. And 1-800-ROUNDUP became a hotline in the 90s that's still operational today, where farmers can call in if they think their neighbors are replanting seed that has their genes in it and violating that technology use agreement that they'd signed. And and you can call in and say, you know, I think that my, my neighbor is misusing seed. So it wasn't just detectives, it was also farmers turning on one another. And you see this kind of bitterness that's developing in farm country over, you know, this this patented technology and 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 this new culture of not saving seeds it really becomes quite nasty. And I think it gets even worse in some ways when the technology starts to fail in some ways, when weeds start developing resistance to rent because farmers are spraying it all over the place. 
And that's where things really get nasty because now you're buying this technology, you've retooled your whole operation, spray Roundup throughout the growing season, and now weeds are no longer dying because you've sprayed so much Roundup that they've developed resistance to it. And we start seeing that by 2004, 2005, weed resistance becoming a huge problem for farmers across the country. And gonna, we're still facing that today. I'm going to put a pin in that uh, avenue of discussion for just a second. I definitely want to get back to that. But I do need to rewind just a little bit back to Soda Springs, Idaho in the mid-1970s when Monsanto got in trouble with the EPA for something that the EPA discovered within its chemical plant there. A highly radioactive phosphate slag is how it's described in the book. What exactly is this and just how big a problem was it? Yeah, it was a big problem. Um, basically, what in order to make Roundup or glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, you have to process phosphate rock, phosphate ore, uh, that in this case is mined in Idaho. Um, and at one point, I believe the town was called Monsanto, Idaho, because of how significant Monsanto was hmm. there. It became Soda Springs. Soda Springs, Idaho. It's about a town of 3,000 people. And the process involves taking this phosphate ore, putting it into a plant facility where you heat up to an incredible intense heat, that rock, to create very pure elemental phosphorus. You hear the name glyphosate, fosate. The phosphorus is the key ingredient in that. And it's very difficult to make because you have to, you have to heat up this rock to incredible temperatures. Just to give you a sense, Trey, of how intense this is, I camped out at this site to learn more about it. I, I, um, this particular facility is actually a super fun site, super fund, as in one of the more <laughs> toxic sites. I, I think I've, I've explained to some of my students that they say super fun, and I'm always like, it's not super fun. It's super fund, as in the super fund act of 1980, created to clean up the most toxic sites around the, the country. And so this facility has Superfund designation, and so does the mine sites around it. So I, I camped out to kind of get to know what was going on at this facility. And, you know, the energy that's needed just to process that phosphate rock is the same amount of energy needed to power the city of Salt Lake, Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah, you know, which has a major NBA, t you know, big city. Um, and that's, it's just an incredible process that that particular facility also produces about 90 percent of the entire mercury emissions in the entire state of idaho i mean it's just the, the 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 scale of of kind of pollution at this facility is really remarkable but as you mentioned one of the issues is phosphate slag this waste right after you processed out that elemental phosphorus of phosphate slag which has uh radioactive material in it and for years the town was actually sold this waste. They actually built their homes and their roadways and their sidewalks, home foundations out of this aggregate, and you know, really good kind of con concrete in, in many ways. Uh, that was the waste product of this phosphate industry. The problem was, of course, it had radioactive material in it. And as you said, the EPA came in and said, whoa, folks, we're seeing, and it's not, I'm not trying to say this is like, you know, enriching plutonium or something where it's just massive quantities of radioactivity, but it still had low levels of radioactive, uh, you know, material in it. 
that was creating you know elevated levels of gamma radiation in people's basements and, and home foundations to the point that the EPA said, hey guys, you know, we gotta clean this up. This is kind of a mess. The town really kind of rebels in some ways against this. And that's partially because a town of 3,000 people, the phosphate industry was so significant as an employer to this, to this community that I think there was a, this idea that if this gets regulated, what, what would happen to jobs? And understandably, as a writer, I got why they were so resistant in some ways to the regulators coming in and, and you know, poking around in this industry. But the truth is that today there's still this massive phosphate slag pile that there's nothing, it's getting bigger and bigger at the facility because it can't be sold. It has radioactive material in it. And, you know, the site itself is also leaching contaminants of concern. I mean, you think about rainwater and other things that fall into this off the facility. And I was on a podcast recently. Last thing I'll say about this, where someone reached out to me and, uh, and just to be anonymous about it, I, you know, I won't say more than that about, you know, the working conditions um, mm. at these facilities and I think one of the stories I, I really tried to emphasize in this book is that, okay, okay, maybe, you know, you don't worry too much about glyphosate in your food. Okay, maybe that's not something that, you're, that, that concerns you. But you should care about the people who produce this stuff, you know? And one of the things I try to do in this story is to, to highlight these facilities that no one had really been talking about. We talked about Roundup, but we never really talked about, well, what happens when you make this stuff? I mean, and, you know, it turns out that it's radioactive waste, that they're super fun sites. You know, this is, is this a sustainable future for our food system? I think that's the question we really need to have um, when thinking about Soda Springs. From the very beginning, in other words, of making Roundup, we've got a real problem. Um, and I think we see on the back end also some concerns, like, you know, in 2015, when the study came out showing that glyphosate could be a probable human carcinogen. I'm not here to, to weigh in 100% on that. I think the science is still being debated on what's the link between cancer and glyphosate. But given that there's a lot of uncertainties, should we be spraying it, you know, on hundreds of millions of acres at the rate we're doing it right now? I think it's a real question for the future. I think it's a great question. Back to Roundup and the seeds that became, and the weeds rather, that became resistant to Roundup after GE seeds were uh taken to the market. Aussie farmers began reporting on Roundup-resistant weeds in around 1996, with many American farmers and scientists making similar observations after the turn of the century. How did Monsanto react to this news? Yeah, I mean, so the weed scientists I've talked to say, you know, as late as the early as the, you know, the, uh, the mid to late 1990s, you're seeing, you know, concerns about weed resistance developing. That is to say, Roundup-ready crops crops that have been genetically engineered, soybeans, cotton, corn, to resist heavy springs of Roundup led to just an explosion of Roundup use and weeds start developing resistant almost immediately. I mean, that's what's so crazy. And Monsanto had said, even in scientific journals, that this would not happen, that there would not, that, that Roundup was unique. It was a different kind of chemical. Weeds would not develop resistance to it. I'm at Ohio State with some of the best weed scientists in the country who were saying, what? Like, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, almost anything in nature, when you spray it and put that kind of selection pressure on it, it's going to adapt. It's going to, there's going to be mutations. And of course they were right. I think one of the things that was really wild about being at Ohio state was talking to the weed scientists about that moment, early nine, late 1990s, early two thousands, where they're seeing this in their labs. 
And then Monsanto reps would show up and knock on their lab door and say, no, this isn't resistance. And, and, and folks, I got to know very well here with great integrity, the wheat scientist saying, what are you doing knocking on my door telling me how to do my science? You know, yes, the weeds are developing resistance and you need to do something about it. Instead, there was this kind of futzing around about it to the point where it got out of hand. And the problem is at some point, farmers are, are clued into it because it doesn't work as well, you know. And that happens in earnest, I think, you know, 2005, 2006, you can see that that resistance problem has become huge. And now you've got these genetically engineered crops that supposedly were supposed to mean that you never had to use all these other herbicides. That's exactly what Monsanto said. All you have to spray is Roundup. And now, no, now farmers are having to go back to older chemicals to try and kill weeds that have developed resistance to Roundup. And when I mean older chemicals, Chemicals like 2,4-D, which we talked about at the start of the conversation. You know, it goes back to the 40s. This is old stuff. Dicamba, another chemical that's come back in earnest in recent years because of weed resistance. Try and kill those weeds. And these are chemi- that was a chemical you know, approved in the 60s before Roundup. One of the things I said in the book, in other words, is that the future of food is really our past. We have this vision that it's like we're going forward. But I kept seeing in the the record, we're, wait a minute, we're going back to 2,4-D and dicamba? It seemed like we were going the wrong way. And in the case of dicamba, you know, Monsanto is really stuck. So what do we do? Well, let's create a whole new line of seeds that not only are tolerating Roundup, but also tolerating other herbicides like dicamba. And that's what you started seeing by 2015, 2016 a new generation of seeds that have multiple herbicide resistance, not just um, glyphosate, but now glyphosate and dicamba. And and now there's one on the market that's being approved for crops that can tolerate glyphosate, dicamba, glufosinate, uh, 2,4-D, and one other, I can't remember, five different herbicides. You know, it's exploding. And and from a business standpoint for, for Monsanto, okay, this makes sense. Just you got to sell a new seed, you know, and sell it with a new tolerance to a new herbicide. The problem is once you spray those herbicides like dicamba at the rate we're going to be spraying it, you start seeing resistance again. So it's like this cycle. And you you said it's like pharmaceutical. It's like this addiction that you can't really get out of if you continue down that path. Um, We're not really fixing our weed problems. We're perpetuating them in some ways and making them harder to solve. Um, And the last thing I'll say about dicamba that's so problematic is that this stuff is really dangerous. You know, when when we made crops, when Monsanto made crops tolerate dicamba, farmers were able to spray this stuff during the growing season. And that's particularly warm temperatures. Dicamba is volatile. It vaporizes in warm temperatures. So what we started seeing was this chemical jumping, as farmers would say, off target. It was being sprayed on these genetically engineered crops that were tolerating dicamba, but maybe farmers next door didn't want to buy those seeds, had no dicamba tolerant seeds. Well, their crops would get hit with this dicamba drifting off their property onto these other fields. And I'll tell you, people are so livid about this that just, I think it was two weeks ago, I got a call from a farmer in his combine you know, calling me about dicamba. 
it's harvest time. If you know anything about farming, this is not a time when farmers want to talk to you on the phone. <laughs> but he stopped his combine at the top of a hill so he could get cell service out west. I won't even say the state to you know keep him anonymous. But and he just said, "This dicamba thing is out of control." He's an organic soybean farmer, so he doesn't buy Monsanto seeds. But because of dicamba drift, vaporizing and then drifting onto his property, his crops get hit with dicamba. And they don't tolerate dicamba because they don't have the gene to tolerate it. And it's just the, the Ninth Circuit Court uh, in, um, in, uh, in, San, in California, there was a three-panel judge weighing in on this dicamba debacle in 2020. And they said this stuff is, quote, tearing the social fabric of farming country in this in the United States asunder. I mean, it's once again, going back to those detectives, you know, and people calling and ratting out their neighbor for saving seeds. This is an even darker turn where you have chemicals that are drifting off properties and hitting people who have no choice. They have nowhere to go. So much so that they're so upset that they'd stop a combine during harvest to try and talk to a uh, a guy halfway across the country to say, hey, please tell this story, you know, because this is bothering us. This is this is this is affecting our ability, our freedom to farm. It's so fucking infuriating. And just thinking about the parallels between Big Pharma and Monsanto mixing chemicals for the good of the public until they no longer are never really being held accountable for gross negligence that figuratively and literally has cost people their lives spending insane amounts of money on marketing their projects, buttering up reps and customers with luxuries. I mean, just how influential is Monsanto with the policy that's being created by local, state, and federal governments? I think extremely. I mean, I think that the ability that this has become the way to farm, you know, and yet we're seeing that this deep petrochemical dependency type of farming is broken. And and it might not matter to us at the at the grocery store right now, um, because we've been able to sustain this long enough with these new seeds and things like that. But this is going to catch up with all of us, especially as we try and get off fossil fuels. You know, which which is the the basics uh, raw materials you need to make these petro petrochemicals. You know, but this is going to become this addiction, as you aptly put it, as a kind of pharmaceutical addiction in a way is gonna become a problem for all of us if we don't turn and pivot strongly. Now I'll say this, I think um, Bayer, the German life sciences company, um, biotech company that was also in agriculture, bought Monsanto in 2018. And without going into too much detail, I know based on my sourcing and based on conversations I've had internally, but there are people inside that company that know there's a problem. And I wrote this book, and you'll see it in the introduction, in a way to talk to some of those folks. One of the things I think I tried to emphasize in this book is that companies are made up of certainly people that do unethical things, like that person who wrote sell the hell out of them as much as we possibly can. But there's also good people in this book, you know, people who wanted to blow the whistle, for example, on problems, who wanted to come out and try and be a part of fixing these things instead of just running away from them. And I have a sense that there are people inside there right now 
who who want to do that kind of good work. And we, Lord knows we need them, you know, because of exactly what you said, the influence and power of one of the largest seed sellers in the world cannot be overemphasized in terms of how we're going to reshape our food system. And they can either choose to be a part of this problematic past or to really rethink everything about what they do to revolutionize this industry in ways that I think um, would end our dependence on petrochemicals, you know, would, would, would really stop this kind of cycle that I think farmers are in. Um, that's going to take a lot of courage and it's going to take a lot of hard work. But um, I hope that those conversations are happening right now. And they should, given what's happened to Bayer. I mean, Bayer's stock price plummeted. It was worth, Trey, the same amount of money Bayer was that it ended up paying to buy Monsanto nine months after that merger because their price had dropped so much, their market cap had dropped so much by nine months later after they bought Monsanto because of all these problems of the past. And it's not just Roundup and the concerns about it potentially being carcinogenic. It's PCBs. You know, listeners can go and check this out on the news today. Maryland just filed suit last week, the state of Maryland, to try and get companies that produce uh, PCBs, Bayer at this case, Monsanto, to clean up the PCB contamination that's still there, right? Dicamba is a huge debacle for the company. They're, they lost this massive lawsuit in Missouri where a farmer won over 200, and, I forget what it was, $280 million, you know, against uh, a person who, who had dicamba drift on them. They've got problems of epic proportions to the point where shareholders have just filed suit against Bayer. The shareholders are filing suit against their own company because they believe that they've, they've taken the wrong turn here. It's, the, it's a time to pivot, if ever, you know, when you see your market cap being cut in half. Um, if you're not rethinking how you're doing your business at that point, then I don't know what else is going to push you to do something different. So based on everything that you just said, Bart, why in the world did Bayer buy Monsanto back in 2018? You know, it's interesting because there was there was a disagreement about this. As you'll see in the book, the, the previous CEO uh, before the current one, Warner Bauman, um, didn't want to do this deal. And I think because of the things we talked about, given the the history and some of this stuff, you know, in the book is new. A lot of the stuff that I'm trying to point out are things that I was able to find through, you know, rummaging around in, in interviews. I talked to people inside the company on and off the record and got got stories that, that that you won't find anywhere else. But, you know, the story about Agent Orange, for example, like a lot of this stuff, you know, we know this. And and I think there was a concern among some in management to not to not do this. There were other those who, others who were really gung ho. Wow, what if we can acquire this seed portfolio? The large, and again, Monsanto was the largest seed seller in the world. I mean, we can control, you know, so much of the food industry and the ag industry if we did that. And I think it was like that carrot. You know, it's just too good to to go after that. That they didn't pay attention, in, in my opinion, to what was staring them in the face. These deep, these deep historical problems. The other thing I'll say, Trey, is I, it's just been startling to see over the last several years the the courage and the the stamina and the the scale of resistance. You know, there are one hundred and twenty thousand cases that were filed or, or 
or in, in the process of being filed related to Roundup. And many of those people will never settle. They've said that. We're not settling, you know. And they've been fighting for years, many of them with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, you know, this is the last thing they're going to do probably before, before unfortunately, they, they pass. Um, same thing with PCBs. You know, states now raising up and saying, wait a minute, why are we accepting the health and pollution problems of this and not having the companies that produce this and that knew some of this stuff was toxic, helping to clean it up? Same thing in Vietnam, where people are now writing and saying, where is Bayer? Where is Monsanto? helping to clean up this thing that they knew, you know, going back to 49 was problematic. So I think, and I never saw it coming, Trey, like the, 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 the groundswell of activism and just basically people saying enough is enough. Um, and I don't think Bayer saw it clearly because they wouldn't have done the merger if they had. Um, but now that they're in this position, they got to rethink what they're doing. And I'm heartened by that, you know, I'm, I, I really am. I never you, you got to remember, I, did, I started this 10 years ago. I, ne- I didn't know Bayer was going to buy him. And I didn't. And I had certainly had no idea that all these court cases and everything were going to go the way they did. And I, I remember telling one person, the last thing I'll say on this is. Am I watching the implosion of one of the biggest corporations in the world? You know, like, I don't think I've ever seen, I'm a business historian. I, I teach this stuff. I don't think I've ever seen anything like this, Hmm. you know? And so stay tuned is what I'd say to the listeners, because the book is just the beginning. And once you get into this, I think you're going to be interested in in what's happening. The Dicamba case is going to the Supreme Court on December 10th. Um, Hmm. So, you know, listen out to what the Supreme Court is going to decide about. uh, Actually, I'm sorry, not Dicamba, but the the Roundup case. Uh, One of the, the major Roundup cases, the Hardiman case, is going to potentially be heard by the Supreme Court. They're going to decide whether they want to review it. And I don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, I mean, this is just incredible stuff that's happening right now. And um, yeah, we may be watching the collapse of one of the biggest corporations in the world. Yeah, that's crazy to think about. And uh, your optimism, I think, is a, an important note in all of this, considering everything that you've been exposed to, that you uh, do believe that things can turn out for the better, I uh, think should not be lost in the entirety of this conversation. And last question, Bart, if you don't mind, we continue this for another hour, no problem, but uh, I'll end it here. Have GE crops radically improved food production like Monsanto promised back in the mid-1990s? Well, classically, with your good questioning, uh, it's a great segue to answer two things, which is, you know, you said the positive, the positive story. And I think, you know, we can grow food without doing this insanity is one of the things I've learned by talking to farmers. You know, Uh, we can do that. This is not a lot of what we've talked about is not feeding the world. And that's because here's some data. Right. As you said, um, let's look at yield. Did genetically engineered crops radically increase the rate at which we were producing, you know, grain or in the case of corn, corn or soybeans, right? Um, The answer is no. Uh, It's very clear. The National Academy of Sciences in 2016 did a study, comprehensive study looking at GE technology. And it said that, look, if you compare the yield of genetically engineered crops alongside non-genetically engineered crops of the same variety, say corn with corn or soybeans with soybeans, the yield trends are pretty much the same. 
You know, there hasn't been this inflection point with G, the introduction of genetically engineered crops where we see this radical increase in food production. Now, there were there are a series of crops called BT crops that produce their own insecticide. And in some places where there's heavy pest pressures, we, we do see a, a, a kind of yield bump. But on the whole, the National Academy of Sciences said, we're not seeing a dramatic change in the yield. You know, we can, if you grow things conventionally versus genetically engineered, you know, it's not that really that big of a deal. I mean, beyond that, though, part of the problem is we're growing a lot of this stuff is corn and soybeans, you know, and we're growing all this other stuff that's really more fodder for animals and not really food for people to consume, which is a whole other issue. Um, and, and the last thing I'll say is we're doing this, right? We're not seeing a huge yield bump while we're increasing our independence on petrochemicals. So we're, we're making it more costly in some ways to produce this food um, and environmentally more concerning while not getting the benefit of a massive yield boom. So I think going back to the hopeful <laughs> line is, you know, but if you talk to farmers, they say, but this isn't about making food. Our, this is about making profit. This is about growing a certain type of agricultural system that we know is broken. If we, if we think about reshaping our farms to being much more diverse, not so monoculture focused, about producing actual food that consumers can eat as opposed to fodder for animals, we can way more efficiently feed the planet. And that might mean that we can also get off a lot of these petrochemicals that have all these problems. I'm hopeful, talking to the farmer that I talked to on that combine, for example, who had been growing things conventionally with chemicals for years, who's made the switch because he believes he can do it more profitably and he believes he can do a better job and, you know, do it in a way that ethically he can stand by to produce food for people. Uh, we're seeing people getting the memo out in middle America, out in other parts of the country. And uh, I'm excited to see what happens in the next 10 years after talking to those farmers, what food future will they provide us? I think it'll be one outside of the, the, the magic that Bayer has promised. And that's a good thing. And I'm excited to see what the future holds after talking to Bart Elmore, an award-winning professor at The Ohio State University and a writer who investigates the impact of big business on our environment. His newest book is titled Seed Money, Monsanto's Past and Our Food Future. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Bart, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this enlightening book. That was a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Trey. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.